Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, abortion was immediately illegal in Louisiana, Kentucky, and South Dakota. By Monday, though, abortions were back in Louisiana. A special court injunction gave those wanting the procedure some more time before abortions became illegal. The same happened in Utah and Texas. But these measures are just temporary. Within the next few months, abortion is likely to be illegal in 26 states, over half the states in the country. The U.S. already has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed nation. In 2020, it was nearly 24 deaths for every 100,000 births. That's almost three times the number in Canada. And soon, in many parts of the country, more people will be at risk because they don't have the option of safe abortion. We still have to make sure that they have some type of access to be able to have that choice. That has to happen. That's Shannon Brewer, the director of the Jackson Women's Health Organization. It was the last abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi. And it's the plaintiff in the court case that was used to bring down Roe v. Wade. We're thinking of different, like, OBGYN, different things we could do here, like ultrasounds, birth control, referrals, help patients to get to other states if they still want to have abortions and help with travel and lodging and stuff like that from here. That clip is from a podcast called Banned, about the battle over abortion rights in the Deep South. It's hosted by journalist Rosemary Westwood, who's been following this for the past six years. Today on the show, Rosemary will help us understand how the U.S. got to this point and how activists and women's health centers are fighting back. This is The Decibel. Rosemary, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's my pleasure. You've been covering reproductive rights in the U.S. for a few years now, since 2016. When did you realize that that Roe v. Wade was truly in trouble? It was in 2016. I moved to the United States a couple weeks before Donald Trump was elected. I had been paying attention, as everyone had, to the U.S. presidential election that year. I knew that he campaigned on appointing justices to the U.S. Supreme Court who would overturn Roe versus Wade. And when he was elected, you know, I didn't understand why that might not be possible. Like, given what I knew about the anti-abortion movement's power, its political domination in the Republican Party, the conservative legal movement, it just seemed plausible to me. And at the same time, I felt like it wasn't really getting perhaps the attention on the national scale that I thought it should and that I honestly found confusing. I, I wasn't sure. Was I wrong as a Canadian to think that this could happen? So you're the host of a, a podcast called Band, which looks at the Mississippi case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization that that ended uh, or helped overturn Roe v. Wade. So let's actually talk about the case that's, that's at the heart of all of this. What exactly is this Mississippi case about? So the Mississippi case goes back to 2018. 
And at that time, the Mississippi legislature and anti-abortion activists in the state decided they wanted to pass a 15-week abortion ban. And at that time, it was a kind of a static time for the anti-abortion movement in Mississippi. They had already done pretty much everything they could think of to restrict abortions in their state while Roe versus Wade remained the law. And so often these bills are written in tandem with or completely by an anti, a national anti-abortion organization. This one's called the Alliance Defending Freedom. It had a law. It was looking for you know people to take it up in the states. And it found appetite in Mississippi. It's a 15-week abortion ban. And the point of banning abortions at 15 weeks is that that is months before a fetus is viable. And that's the key, hmm. that's the key distinction in this law and what made it so extreme. It was the most extreme ban, ban in effect when it was signed by the governor. Because Roe versus Wade established that you can't ban abortions before a fetus is viable, before it can live outside the womb. And that happens around 23, 24 weeks of pregnancy. So to try to ban abortion at 15 weeks, months earlier, is clearly unconstitutional under existing Supreme Court precedent. And the point is, from Mississippi's perspective, can we find a judge to agree? Can we find appetite in the courts to dismantle a core holding of Roe versus Wade or completely overturn it? What they saw was Donald Trump was president He'd promised anti-abortion judges. He'd appointed his first, Neil Gorsuch. They felt he'd have more chances. And they were right. Since the decision on, on Friday, we've, we've been hearing a lot about certain states having these trigger laws. Can, can you explain what that means, Rosemary? What is a trigger law? Thirteen states have trigger laws that take effect in various ways now that Roe versus Wade is overturned. And what the trigger laws do is, you know, allow abortions to be banned in the states that have passed them without having to create any additional laws, you know, after the decision. It basically speeds up the process after the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade to being able to ban abortions. In Louisiana, the trigger ban was immediate and clinics instantly really at hearing the court's decision stopped providing abortions. There are three clinics left in Louisiana where I live. Already, one abortion clinic in Louisiana has filed a challenge in state court and won a temporary restraining order against the state to allow it to provide abortions again, arguing that the trigger law violates due process. So we've got these trigger laws that are essentially kind of in these individual states. Roe v. Wade is kind of when it was in place, it was overruling those essentially. But as soon as that was gone, these kind of kick into gear then. And so states like Louisiana and even Utah were both states that had trigger laws and abortions were banned after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, but now, as of Tuesday morning when we're speaking, they're actually resuming. So w can you just break that down for us? What happened there? Yeah. So what happened was the lawyers for abortion clinics in these states had been preparing for this decision. So they had been examining all of the laws in all of these states, looking for legal avenues to provide reprieve, relief in the short term for abortion access. And that is all this is. These lawsuits can provide access for extra weeks, but these battles, these lawsuits are happening in states with dominant anti-abortion politics where lawmakers can just come back at the next available opportunity, pass a law 
that is immune to these kinds of challenges and ban abortions. So it is not the case that these legal challenges are going to shift the big picture here. They're not. They're not designed to. What they're designed to do is give a few more people this opportunity, this right to control their lives, to have the abortions that they've wanted or needed. And for someone in that position, you know, this is life altering. This couldn't be more important. And that's the point of filing these cases. It's not to win some kind of big battle against Roe. Roe's gone. Hmm. It is to try to help as many people as they can in the short term. So let's actually talk about some of the the people that you're hearing from. I mean, we've been chatting about the big picture here, but this is obviously an issue that affects individuals very directly. So I'd like to speak about some of the people that you have in your podcast that you've, that you've spoken to. At the end of every episode, Rosemary, you dedicate it to Gloria. Who is Gloria? Gloria is a pseudonym, but she's a child who I met at an abortion clinic years ago. I was there at a clinic in New Orleans, you know, doing reporting. And one day a child came in. Her parents had brought her in. She was wearing a pink house coat. She was playing an app on a cell phone. They'd put her in an office to kind of keep her away from the older patients, give her a bit of privacy. She had been raped in her neighborhood and she was there to get an abortion. And I just remember sitting with her and chatting a little and she was just just a child. We ate some candy together. Mm. It was so striking, sort of her innocence, her relative obliviousness, I think, to what was happening. And I saw her a few days later. She, uh, I was still at the clinic and she had come back for her checkup. And again, she was just she was happy. She was sitting in a chair with her little legs you know, dangling over the edge, she saw me and she smiled. And it just struck me how drastically her life had changed in those few days. You know, what she was facing if she had had to keep that pregnancy and give birth and what that would have meant for her life and the fact that that didn't happen. And and really what it meant for her was that she could stay a child. I've never forgotten her. She's been at on my mind ever since. And, you know, the point I want to make by telling her story isn't that, you know, she's the only most sympathetic case you can imagine for abortion access. And so somehow that makes her abortion, you know, more worthy or empathetic than other stories that I've told over the years. But it is to say that this is the consequence of what we are seeing. There are no rape or incest exceptions to abortion bans in many states, including Louisiana. I'm often told by anti-abortion activists when I bring up cases like this, that from their perspective, it's like, why focus on this rare, extremely rare case? Why not focus on all the other abortions? And I think the reason why people say that to me is they understand how difficult it is going to be to get the general public to agree that a child who is pregnant should have to give birth to their rapist baby. You said uh, you said that Gloria was a child. How old was she? She was 12. She was 12 when I met her. She was a child. 
let's let's talk about some of the other people that you also speak to in this podcast. You you spent a lot of time speaking to people at the heart of this fight in Mississippi, uh, including a woman named Terry Herring, who someone called the the godmother of, of anti-abortion. Let's let's listen to a clip of about Terry here. Growing up, Terry considered herself a pro-life Christian, but she wasn't an activist. That changed after the birth of her third son. Her doctor, Beverly, was herself a leading anti-abortion activist in the state, and she came into Terry's hospital room. And um, she actually came in with her husband and asked if they could take a picture of Beverly holding my newborn baby for the cover of this pro-life magazine. After the picture, Beverly gave Terry some literature, which is when Terry saw those graphic images of fetuses for the first time. When I saw those pictures, I thought, how can we keep doing this? How are we doing this? I wonder, is, are those things kind of similar to other stories that you hear about how people come to the anti-abortion movement in the first place? I think absolutely. I mean, one thing that is certainly true is that many in the anti-abortion movement that I've met over the years are in the movement as part of the cultural climate within which they have grown up and exist. Uh, conservative religious sort of communities, especially in the in the Deep South, but in other parts of the U.S., are are really robust. You know, you can grow up and, and live your whole life in, in one place and go to the same church and have the same community. And those are places where being pro-life, as they would say, is, is just the norm. But for sure, you know, there are people for whom, you know, their own experiences of pregnancy or birth have made them feel like Yes, there is uh, an equal human life from the moment of fertilization. And and Terry, Terry's experience, I think, was pretty extreme in that sense. I, I've given birth. I know what it's like to be in that place. You are so raw. You are so drained. And to be to see your baby and have that sense of of amazement at that and then to see a really graphic picture of a dismembered fetus, which is what these images are that the anti-abortion movement uses. I just can imagine how forcefully that would have hit her. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the argument that the anti-abortion movement really is making here and people like Terry are making is that if it's a baby when it's born, at what point earlier on is it not a baby? And that's why they go back to fertilization in their minds. That's the origin of life as they see it. What happens though when you when you make that distinction is that you take away any opportunity for nuance, which is why there are no rape and incest exceptions, which is why Terry and others in the anti-abortion movement do not think you should be able to get abortion an abortion if you have a fetus that's not viable. If you're carrying a pregnancy and your baby will die at birth, in Terry's mind, you should still not be able to get an abortion. The only exception that I really see completely uniform across the anti-abortion movement as if the pregnant woman's life is in immediate danger. So it's really, it's a compelling argument from their point of view to look at a, a baby and say, when, when wasn't it my baby? When wasn't this mine? You know, but it's an argument that eviscerates all of the actual health experiences that women go through and the fact, which is why the U.S. Supreme Court used viability as the line, and the fact that before a fetus can survive outside the womb, it isn't alive in that sense, you know, it isn't 
it can't have a life. You also talked to Shannon, who's the director of the Jackson Women's Health Organization, also known as the the Pink House. Uh, And this is the one that's at the heart of the Mississippi case. You ask her what she thinks would happen if Roe is overturned. Let's let's listen to Shannon's response. Will the abortion rights movement kick up a gear or? And do what? It's easier to fight to keep something than it is to fight to get something back after you lost it. So if you're not fighting to keep it, you think they're going to fight even harder to get it back? From everything you've seen and, and reported on, what what's next for the pro-choice movement in the States? I think a lot of that remains to be seen. In the, in the context of what Shannon is saying there, she's really asking not just what, you know, the abortion rights movement, like the actual activists are going to do. She's kind of saying people, people who believe abortions should be legal. What are they going to do? And I really think that actually is the key question because the abortion rights movement has, you know, especially on the ground in the South and Midwest, these grassroots organizations have been doing everything they can. They have been funding abortions for low-income people. They have been fighting in the legislatures against these laws and losing. And the Pink House has been the one defending abortion rights in Mississippi alone, you know, as as a clinic, the last clinic since the mid-2000s. And these organizations are not going anywhere. Diane Derzis, in a press conference the day Roe was overturned, she's the owner of the Pink House, said, we're not lying down. They're opening a new clinic in New Mexico, actually, and they're calling it Pink House West. They think maybe we can open other pink houses, and Diane does have other abortion clinics. The idea being, the more clinics we have, the more funding we have to help people get to these clinics, we can still help people in Mississippi. We don't have to, you know, give up. They need us now more than ever, you know, in Diane's mind. And we can still provide that help. The question, though, is can can the rest of the country kind of rally with them? Can they build a kind of political power that matches the anti-abortion movement? And one point that I think really illustrates the status quo of that right now is that more states this year, knowing Roe versus Wade is about to be overturned, passed abortion restrictions than Democratic states passed abortion expansions. So the power dynamic is still on the anti-abortion side. And, you know, the other key criticism that's been there for many years is that national abortion rights groups didn't didn't invest in places like Mississippi enough to really buffer against the anti-abortion movement where it was strongest. And that's another question, too. How do you build political power for something that's now illegal in, you know, what's expected to be 26 states? So I, I think it's not like those who have been fighting, you know, for abortion rights up to this point are going anywhere. So, you know, will they will they be able to build more political power? Will more Americans join that fight? I'm not sure. Rosemary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show, and Michal Stein edited this episode. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.